Our politics and theology often go hand in hand. They feed each other, and realizing what you believe to be true in one field can set you on a new pathway in the other. That journey may be physical, taking you to a new place, or just spiritual, seeing your current surroundings with a new color. Welcome to Cinema Credo, conversations on film and faith. I'm Adam Glass. Strength and mercy for me, and from me every day. Life and light will bleed into love. Hi, uh, my name is Adam Spickerman, and I grew up in the 80s and 90s in Missouri, uh, going to a United Methodist Church. Uh, and grew. It was an evangelical church and grew up definitely participating in all of the youth group and lock-in and contemporary Christian music, like culture of all of that through middle school, and then started to fall away from some of that high, culture in high school and moved out to L.A. Uh, and went to film school and became a TV editor. Uh, which I've been doing since about 2006. I've been working in post-production and TV. I picked today uh, one of my favorite films, John Ford's How Green Was My Valley, uh, won Best Picture in 1941, and it's a uh, amazing film with a lot of uh, intricate ways that faith is wrapped up in a family's culture and their lives and livelihoods and their community. Uh, with some really amazing messages, I think, for any Hollywood film to have. Indeed. I'd actually, I'd never seen this before uh, you suggested talking about it. Uh, it was, uh, yeah. <laughs> I like, you know, part of this project is seeing movies in a new light, right? Um, mm -hmm. There's plenty of people could see uh, you know, Death to Smoochie or The Village and not get anything out of it. Uh, but, you know, we talk about those sorts of movies uh, in different ways with people who they were deeply affected by. Uh, so I like, I like going into it in the mindset, you know, it's why before, before I sat down to watch it, I asked you your opinion about it um, mm -hmm. so that I could have that in mind as I watched it. Uh, and, you know, I agree. Uh, even if, <laughs> even without that going in, this is, uh, it's a fascinating movie to come out from in 1941. Uh, in the way it treats uh, religion and the way it treats labor politics, too. Indeed. Yeah, it really is quite impressive. Um, and uh, and also, though, the way it treats the women in the film as well. I mean, there's a very yeah. old-school approach to it, but there's also an acknowledgement of, uh, of like, Enharad's desires and, like, her agency within the body of the film. And it's, it's there's a lot to recommend it. Uh, it doesn't fall to some of the failures that a lot of 1930s and 40s Hollywood films do, which is not to say they're not some of my favorite movies, but uh, because yeah. they are. But they're, this is one that definitely seems to stand out as being uh, superior in a lot of ways that it, uh, it just feels good watching it today, even you know when many films don't. So, right. <laughs> so when... 
when did you first uh, first see this movie? I first saw this movie in the summer of 2001. Um, I think I watched it at the USC Cinema Library. I hadn't yet gone to USC, but I was doing one of those, uh, you know, three or four week summer programs, like where you go to one of your schools and do like a pseudo class during the summer. Um, and uh, I had some free time and I was just checking out different movies and we had just watched Citizen Kane in class and I was like, well, I want to see the movie that beat Citizen Kane and uh, just watched it and completely fell in love with it as one of my favorite movies ever. And then I've probably seen it, I don't know, seven, six or seven times since then. You know, every couple of years I probably watch it. So You were about 17, 18. Was that 17, before 18, yeah. or after your senior uh, before or after your senior year of high school then? Just before my senior year of high school, yeah. So. Okay. So had you, your family moved to California? Uh, no, I, and this plays into probably why I've always liked the film so much. Uh, I was the person that left the Midwest. <laughs> so my family is still all well, in Missouri and I came out here for school and I stayed. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, so, okay. you know, my, so you had just done a little, yeah, yeah. A so, little summer thing. Uh huh. It was, uh, a lot of the, a lot of schools, uh, including I think like the university of Missouri have like summer programs, where, like, you know, Indeed. rising seniors or rising juniors uh, can go and spend three or four weeks at the school uh, to get a feel for, like, what the college is like. And it, it really is a uh, it's a recruitment, you know, uh, method for the, the college that's better than just a normal college visit. So, uh, yeah, it was a great experience. And I was like, yeah, US, I have to go to USC. That's my number one school now. So, yeah, uh, I was like, MIT will have to wait. I don't think I want to be an engineer anymore. So you said that, uh, that you sort of began to fall away from that, uh, that CCM, uh, evangelical Methodist culture as you went into high school or as you went through high school. So when you saw this, were you still firmly in that culture or already had one foot out the door? I would say probably had one foot out the door, but not very, like I, I tested the waters, so to speak, but I think I was still very much okay. mentally. And, you know, for the first few years of college was kind of mentally in the evangelical space, even if I wasn't in a proselytizing type of uh, space because that's never really been my yeah. uh, personality um, so like this film taking faith seriously but also providing a framework uh, it's a much more serious and almost theological take on on faith that appealed to me as I was like maturing like that you could think of prayer more intellectually than as simply like uh, you know a, a Santa Claus wish list. This is a this is a movie that portrays prayer not just as an asking for things or or a the secret sort of putting it out in the universe. It's uh -huh. everything they pray for, they work for, right? Yes, yes, they, they work toward. Mm -hmm. you now, prayer is the uh, the centering, the bow of the ship. You yeah, know, you aim yeah. at what you want, but you've still got to move toward it. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that even uh, that phrase in the movie, like the the make your thoughts into things that are solid, and that way your prayer, prayer will have strength, uh, and that strength will right. become part of you in body, mind, and spirit. Like that's an amazing sentiment that doesn't come across in the kind of evangelical uh, tradition I was raised in. I say that's very much, uh, very much the same way, and very much 
what we deal with even today in the uh, the critiques of people who say my thoughts and prayers are with uh, such and such victims of such and such tragedy uh, while not doing anything that they have the power to do. Right, right. Uh, in response. Yeah. So it's not a... <laughs> It's something you've escaped, but not a culture that stopped. So. No, and I'm completely aware that it hasn't stopped. It's uh, uh, it's shocking at times sometimes when you run into it again and you're like, oh my, <laughs> that's like this. Uh, this is something that uh, it has so many different levels of bad to it that I didn't realize. <laughs> so and uh, and now it's just painfully obvious and a little terrifying, isn't it, though? <laughs> As you moved away, uh, this movie, this movie is very much political in as much as it is religious, uh, and mm-hmm. the politics and religion go hand in hand in so many ways. Uh, I assume your your Christian culture was uh, was politically uh, politically uh, conservative as well. Is that would that be an accurate description? Yes, yes. Uh, I didn't even know that Christians couldn't not be Republicans until I came to California. So <laughs> it's actually I uh, I remember a moment when I was eighteen or nineteen uh, when I heard my dad acknowledge that maybe it was a valid interpretation uh, that the uh, the rapture would take place at the end of the tribulation and not at the beginning of the tribulation. And that was the first time I'd ever seen him acknowledge a different uh, different Christian ideology that might have merit. And that's like such a tiny, tiny thing, right? <laughs> wow. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. And, uh, oh, that just makes me think of the, the Left Behind books and... Uh... Oh yeah! How massively I loved that first book, and I thought it was just the coolest thing. Like, you know, all the Revelation stuff, like as portrayed in that, it's all like science fiction. I was like, this is like Star Wars. This is amazing, uh, and it's just it's so so terrible. Uh, and I remember there was it was a couple years before Left Behind, so it got overshadowed. But Pat Robertson wrote a uh, a book like Left Behind that was like a rapture book, like, you know, a fictionalized account of like what would happen if the rapture took over. And one of the terrible things that he's, you know, after the raptures happened and the big, awful Democrat-led socialist global government takes over is all the, because in his book, the children, you know, uh, not all the children get raptured like in Left Behind is, you know, all the children are sent to Washington, D.C. and they're indoctrinated with, you know, witchcraft and mind washing and learn things like levitation. I was like, wait, 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 what? Levitation is real? What? <laughs> that actually sounds pretty cool. I... Right? That was actually my thought as like an 11 year old kid. Yeah. I was like, what is wrong with this? That... <laughs> what is... What's what's the downside here? <laughs> right. Could we, could we maybe have the rapture thing and learn learn <laughs> levitation? That might be <laughs> just do both, right? Yeah. So it's probably uh, not that bad. Yeah. So sorry, <laughs> sorry for the yeah. digression. So <laughs> no, no, by all means, um, <laughs> that's uh, that's what we're here for, you know. Uh, so would you? Uh, you had one, you were so uh, toe one toe out the door, maybe mm-hmm. uh, when you first saw this. Um, but you, uh, you know, you obviously had respect for uh, for what the uh, what the pastor is saying religiously. 
Uh, how did you respond to Mr. Griffith's uh, politics at that point? Um, um, because it's 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 interesting. Uh, you know, unions aren't always automatically a leftist idea, right? Depending on the culture you're in. Um, and unions were kind of non-existent in Missouri in the nineties, uh, by this time, like, uh, you know, uh, as my dad would tell you after NAFTA, uh, <laughs> after Bill Clinton and NAFTA killed all the jobs, and sent them to Mexico. Um, the, uh, so I had really no experience of unions and because unions had been so thoroughly eradicated from, uh, life, uh, like it didn't even like occur to me that like the they were a bad thing because like you just learned virtually nothing about unions in school or like, you know, from the culture around you. So I was like, yeah, this makes sense. Like this, this union stuff, like they're, they're onto something. They'll have power. They can get more money. Like that's, people should do that. <laughs> uh, well, so this is definitely uh, an, an effective educational piece for me in terms of like what, uh, I didn't learn in, in school and from my, uh, my culture and community around me. Yeah, yeah. that's very interesting. So, well, and I'm in, a, I'm in a union now and uh, the Editors Guild Union for IATSE. Uh, and uh, that's, you know, the best thing I've ever done was being able to get into the union and start working union shows. The, uh, the benefits are amazing. The pay is better. And uh, the health insurance is like wow right it's uh going from obamacare to that is like holy yeah. <laughs> especially, especially for a family so yeah oh so, yeah yeah i'm uh, sure just in terms of uh, the out of, out of pocket expenses it's so much uh so much better so you should have we should have a lot uh, a lot more unions for everything <laughs> yeah uh Healthcare has been a been a big thing in my life this year uh back yeah. in may i got hit by a car and uh yeah dealing Ouch. uh Dealing with that, my insurance uh, is not terrible by mm -hmm. any means, uh, but it uh, it could certainly uh, it's you know it's not single payer either. So, right, right. <laughs> so there are there are things we could improve and yep. and should improve. Yes, and everybody should have uh, good health care. <laughs> like, like right. it, it's not a zero sum game where like you know if I have better health care than other people that like. You know, they cannot have better health care because it might make mine worse. No, no, everybody should have access to good health care. It's insane. Like the whole system yeah. is insane. So you you are a little bit older than I am. Uh, I graduated high school in 2003. Okay. Um, and you, uh, you you graduated 2001 then or 2002? 2000, 2002. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, getting out of getting out of film school right at a. Uh, Right at the peak of the Great Recession. Yeah, that was it was a, a superb timing on my part. So, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's uh, I clearly had a lot of a lot of agency in that decision, right? And I'm sure you did as well. So. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's how I ended up as a as a waiter as my daytime job. <laughs> Ouch. Like, well, yeah. yeah. Always need to always need something. It's interesting though, uh, you know, with my with my pathway. Uh, you know, I graduated at a time where that was basically the only thing I could get hired to do when I graduated with a mm -hmm. with an English degree. Right. Um, but very quickly realized that what I wanted out of a job was something that paid my bills and took no creative thought. So that the stuff I do that takes creative thought doesn't have to pay my bills. Yep. Uh, and it's worked out for me. 
Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, but it has led to me. <laughs> I'd certainly, uh, you know, you you went the different route, uh, doing the creative work that does play pay your bills, and uh, it certainly worked out for you too. It seems. Well, um, and uh... and I'm sure you've got better health care than I do. So. But uh, the result is I, I haven't really done creative things since college because, as you right. quite accurately pointed out, when your job is creative, you don't have a lot of creative energy left or desire to put in the effort on your uh, your own uh, you know projects. So, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah it happens. Uh-huh. So you saw this um, first uh, first toes in the water coming out of that conservative. Uh, evangelical upbringing uh you're loving unions now because they seem like such a great <laughs> idea uh and you and you moved to uh you moved to liberal stronghold california yeah uh how uh how did your family feel about you moving to uh, uh they to were LA? they were actually really supportive about it all i think they were a little surprised that i never moved back to missouri uh, but, yeah. uh, I don't think they ever really, um, understood that, you know, 99.5% of the jobs are in Los Angeles and the other half a percent are in New York and, uh, anywhere else I would work would have to be probably local news, which was not something I was super interested in doing. Um, I was right. I wasn't pursuing journalism, you know, along with the film degree, so I wouldn't have been extremely well suited to to local news. Um, so, you know, but that's usually what I would tell them. I would say, you know, all the jobs are in LA, so I got to stay in LA. Uh, and I loved LA ever since I first came out here. I was one of the, you know, the people from New York that come out to California are all like, Oh, I hate LA. But uh, a lot of the people from the Midwest come out and are like, I love LA. This is amazing. Uh, you know? So, yeah. <laughs> would you, do you think, uh, the characters leaving home in this film, uh, affected your decision to uh to get out of uh Missouri did that help um, you along as uh no i or, or inspire in any way i'd known for about th- since i was about in high school that i wanted to uh go fairly far away for college i was definitely looking almost exclusively at out of state schools um yeah so like that had been kind of a goal for me for quite a few years it's just uh i don't think any anybody ever really thought i'd go all the way to california so <laughs> yeah 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 just a little so, further yeah what part of missouri were you from if you don't uh getting uh i i well we moved around a lot my dad uh did uh sales and so his job changed every few years sometimes as he would you know try a diff- this company or that company uh, but I grew up mostly in uh, Joplin, Missouri. That's where we spent the majority okay. of, of my childhood, which is in the southwest corner of Missouri, one of the more conservative parts of the state. So, But the whole state is conservative now, but it, at, in the 90s, that was like the most conservative part of the state. So it's southwest, so that's... Uh... Yeah, the southwest corner. Uh, yeah. We were we were about um, five miles from like the Oklahoma border and three miles from the Kansas border, so <laughs> it's right right there. So <laughs> yeah, that is that is very southwest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's a part of Missouri. St. Louis isn't even the closest large city to that part of Missouri. That's that's nope. got to be Kansas City, I think. Yeah, point. Kansas City. Yep. <clears throat> huh. Uh, <laughs> I've got a. 
my brother-in-law is actually from uh, from out that way, southwest corner. I'm not entirely sure uh, what uh, what portion exactly. Oh yeah. <laughs> he ended up in Virginia though, which is okay. where he met my sister. So nice. Uh, yeah. So everyone I know from that area got out of that area. So. <laughs> uh, the most people uh, stay, and I think. I mean, that's great because it's a good community uh, and most people want to stay with the community that they know and love. Uh, and it's, you know, it's a good place for a kid to grow up for the most part. Um, but yeah, if there's, uh, if you're not, you know, involved in like the major hospitals in the area, which are probably the biggest employers uh, or Eagle Pitcher, which is another major employer, like there's not a lot going on in the, the town. It's about 40, 50,000 people. Um, yeah. That's, so, uh, so you know, it's probably like a lot of towns in Ohio, I would imagine. So, that is very true of yeah. of a lot of places in Ohio. Ohio has larger cities closer together, of course, but uh, mm -hmm. you, know, you can never you can never get more than maybe an hour and a half away from Cincinnati, Cleveland, or Columbus yeah. within Ohio. But ah, you know, uh, but yeah, that's uh, fun. Uh, I store so many stupid trivia facts. Part of the reason uh, cities are closer together east of the Mississippi is most of the land was settled before railroads became a regular way of transporting mm. people. You know, by the time they started settling Missouri and all the Plains states, they had railroads. And so cities got spread further apart uh, because the limit on the separation between cities was about how far a farmer could go in a day, one direction or another. Um, and in right. order to deliver his wares to town to sell them. Uh, and so, like, you had to have cities every certain amount of spacing, and it's consistent right up until we get technology that makes it different. So. <laughs> interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> yeah. So, huh. Which is why the town spacing in Ohio is about the same as the town spacing in Europe, for example. So. Yes. Huh. That's uh yeah I didn't know that that's that is incredibly fascinating you're blowing my mind a little bit right now so <laughs> well and then it got even worse when you had uh, refrigerated shipping because uh, that's when yes. suburbs became possible so because you didn't have to have fresh milk yes. anymore so <laughs> yeah right just uh, you know thinking about uh, about your your church upbringing and the uh, the religion portrayed in this film that literally sniveling other deacon. Mr. Perry. <laughs> uh, Mr. Perry. He's definitely closer to the stereotype of, uh, of the conservative churchman uh, that, uh, that I've experienced growing up oh, uh, than, uh, than Mr. Griffith, uh, certainly. <laughs> uh, no, he's the one, he's the one who, uh, who's anti-union and uh, mm -hmm. who uh, forces the call out of the... Uh, of the unwed mother. Yeah. Um, Prayer is wasted on your sort, he says. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what a guy. Wow. Yeah. Um, uh, well, and so clever of the film to put that sequence immediately after the big prayer sequence with, you know, Mr. Griffith and Hugh, where that we were talking earlier, where he's like talking about you know like what prayer is and how you, how do you pray and right. and like uh really passing on a great sense of all of that by prayer you and by prayer i don't mean shouting and mumbling and wallowing like a hog in religious sentiment 
Prayer is only another name for good, clean, direct thinking. When you pray, think. Think well what you're saying. Make your thoughts in the things that are solid. And that way, your prayer will have strength. And that strength will become a part of you, body, mind, and spirit. And then, boom, we have the opposite, like in the next scene virtually. And uh, very uh, on point, deliberately, to put those two things together of like course. that. Your sins have found you out. And now you must pay the price of all women like you. You have brought a child into the world against the commandment. Prayer is wasted on your sort. You shall be cast out into the utter darkness till you have learned your lesson. Michael and Lewis, do you admit your sin? Yeah, this is an incredibly well-crafted film all around, writing yeah. and production-wise. It's, uh, yeah. Uh, and the, the way it deals with those uh, dichotomies... Uh, on on all its different narrative levels, like the two mm-hmm. weddings, uh, you know, are, yes. are obviously very handled very differently and shot very differently. And uh, but similarly yeah. enough that like it it creates the uh, all of the emotions that you feel, uh, you right. know, that that are different. Like it's even just the uh, uh, just the the shot structure and like the peril. Like John Ford likes to do a lot of. Uh, uh, parallel shots, I guess you would call them, or like recurring shots where, you know, he sets up, you, you know, you look at the church in such a way and then you'll see it again later. And that echo of the later one, like has a different, you know, tone and tinge to right. it, but it, it has more weight to it because you're remembering like where it was before. So like you're getting the right. arc, a visual arc in a way that bridges them from one to the other. It's very, and it's like one right. of the major visual motifs in this film, especially the, uh, uh, with the two mind disasters where the first time, uh, you have, uh, the father coming out holding his like oldest son, uh, and then by the end of the movie, you have the exact same shot, and now it's the son holding the father, uh, which has a lot right. of religious implications. Amazing, as well. Uh, and and th- those sorts of like uh, shot structures are just all throughout the whole film, and create so much uh, extra like punch for the movie in a way. So, right, yeah. right, yeah. This is just it is. <laughs> I. Uh... No offense to Citizen Kane, but I I understand this one winning Best Picture over it. Uh, it's well, uh, it's a very well crafted film. Uh, it really is. Well, and you know this was not a controversial thing for this movie to have won Best Picture uh, until you know uh, the the Cahiers du Cinema kids, uh, you know your Godards and your yeah. uh, uh, Truffauts and all of those guys, you know really set forth the auteur, you know, precepts and, uh, and that whole generation and the generations that came after them were like, Oh yeah, this is great. It's all about me. And for them, you know, for what they were valuing in cinema, uh, Citizen Kane was like, like the pinnacle of everything that they could want out of that, because, you know, it's about, you know, they're setting themselves up to be, you know, writer directors that are one person against the whole system. And here's, a movie about one person against the whole system, but I don't know. I think they missed, uh, you know, that 
that Charles Foster Kane is bad. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, uh, yeah. It turns out billionaire like, industrialist, yeah. not a great guy. Uh, right. And but I mean, it is, uh, you know, it's kind of like the different things that they, that those specific people at that specific time valued. And there was a long period there where like how green was my valley fell out of favor because you know not because they didn't value what was in how green was my valley but because of that classic like oscar backlash thing where it's like oh my god you know crash is the worst movie ever because brokeback mountain didn't win well crash is a mediocre movie but it's not the worst movie ever uh and uh this it's always unfortunate when you have truly great films competing against each other and one of them gets you know crapped on for decades because uh uh it you know it didn't fit in with like what a particular group wanted for themselves so i think uh king's speech and social network are like that as well so Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh but you know people different groups of people value different things and uh particularly in 1941 uh you know this is a film where you know it's about labor and there's all the labor strife of the 20s and 30s leading up to this point, including in Hollywood. You know, the late 1930s are when all of the major guilds and unions all finally effectively formed and had to get the studios on as major signatories. Uh, so even though Daryl F. Zanuck was extremely anti-union, you know, and John Ford was the pres- presiding officer, like he was like the uh, president of the Directors Guild in 1941 at the time this was made they're still working together and making movies and uh it wasn't uh the fact that this movie was about labor and was on the side of labor was something that people within the industry valued and they liked seeing you know this even as hilariously enough the academy itself was invented in 28 in order to be an anti-union organization like that that was their hope was that they would (laughs) be able to create the academy of motion pictures arts and sciences and be able to break the unions somehow and uh that didn't work so (laughs) yeah uh interesting i didn't know that about the academy either that's uh that's very fascinating yeah it was Um, founded by all of the most anti-union people in hollywood at the time i believe so uh but then, you know, this is 12 years later and like the it's literally the most pro-union movie to ever win an Oscar pretty much outside of maybe Norma Ray. Uh, and it's one yeah. of the best. So, yeah. Yeah, that's a you know, you talk about uh, Zanuck being involved and, and that may maybe being a reason it pulled some punches. Uh, yeah. You know, the uh, well, Zanuck the corporation. Had, uh, oh, just to. Fall in on that. Zanuck had final cut on this film. John Ford was not allowed in okay. the edit. He was not allowed in the editing room, which was he wasn't reason- allowed. Yeah, reasonably standard for 1930s and 40s major Hollywood films. Uh, it's why, like something like The Informer that John Ford did in 35 or 36, which was the first independent movie, like one of the first independent movies of Hollywood, uh, is uh, he is so different from almost any other Hollywood movie you'll, you'll see because it's, uh, it's against the fact that Victor McLaughlin is an informer, but it's sympathetic to him as well. Uh, and it's a really politically fascinating film in its own right. Uh, but very independent and apart from like the kind of thing that Hollywood would be doing, but that's a movie where John Ford would have been involved in the editing. Uh, and Zanuck Mm -hmm. was one of the most powerful producers in Hollywood and, personally oversaw the editing of most of his films. 
but uh, Ford realized that, and one of the reasons how green was my valley, uh, one of its like reputations amongst cinematographers today is it's got maybe the smallest shooting ratio uh, for any major Hollywood film ever in that uh, its shooting ratio was about 1.2 to 1, which means if they shot 1,200 1, feet of film, 1,000 feet of that film that they shot are in the final picture, like are the final negative. Like, you know, it's a two-hour movie, and they shot, and John Ford edited the whole thing in the camera, basically, so he only shot about two hours and 40 minutes of footage. Okay, so so what he handed in to be edited uh, pretty much had to be the final product. Yeah, it did. So you can see kind of the ways that like there was conflict going on there anyway. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's got a fascinating back production history to it. So yeah, yeah, that is very interesting. And the way, yeah, I uh, I was just uh, thinking, you know, within the film itself, the corporation's obviously bad overarchingly but the uh, the boss isn't necessarily the the mine owner when he shows up isn't is someone who commands respect in the room uh and is nervous about what he's doing himself ah, uh, uh, and uh, is never really painted bad well overtly. that is probably what i think is the movie's biggest failing and this actually yeah. plays right into what we were just talking about uh the two you know how we were talking earlier there's the two prayer scenes right in the middle of the movie with Mr. Griffith and Hugh and then there's Mr. Parry in the you know where they're yes. cast, casting out the adulteress or whatever right after that uh in between was supposed to be the first scene it's written in the script and I've read the original script uh was a scene where they introduce you know um Mr. Evans, the mine owner, and his son, Iestin, who winds up marrying Anharid. And Zanuck cut that scene out entirely. Uh, and he actually just told Ford, uh, you know, just improvise a scene on set. And because uh, we have still have to introduce the mine owners. And so the scene you see that starts with, you know, Anharid slapping Hugh's naked ass and then goes to <laughs> the mine owner coming in and he's all like, you know, like, oh, I don't know what's going on. Uh, that is 100% John Ford. Uh, and it also completely undermines a lot of the labor politics of the film. Uh, because right. Ford throughout his whole career loved, like loved making fun of rich people. Uh, and he didn't often yes. ever take, take them seriously in any film he made. Uh, so when he's given the opportunity to create a scene of the rich guy, he makes him into almost a comic figure. Uh, Right. Which is a shame because the the scene that they cut was uh, 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 basically the mine owner's son like makes a pass at Anharid outside the church, and uh, her brothers like leap to her defense and start to beat him to a pulp. Uh, and there's a whole big conflict, direct conflict between the Morgans and the Evanses, but. When Mr. Evans, the mine owner, who's a much more imposing, like, you know, stern figure in this scene, uh, finds out, like, what prompted it, he's like, ah, oh, if that had been Iestin's sister, murder would have been done. And uh, which also kind of illustrates that, you know, the different power dynamic between the, the two families. But that's also what creates the connection between the two families. Uh, so Ford's yeah. scene really is remarkably inadequate compared to what was written but 
it was an explosive right. it's an explosive scene and uh Zanuck wasn't comfortable with it and uh you know so he cut it out of the film it does not surprise me yeah um yeah that reminds me have you ever seen um uh the proud valley from 1940 yeah uh, it's a yeah. british film i have i, I saw yeah. the whole uh, robson set a few years ago so yeah it is it is similarly about uh welsh coal miners uh-huh uh and uh and it famously uh rewrote its entire ending uh to to pull all of the punch out of it almost uh, uh in the original ending of the proud valley the uh the miner sees the mine uh but uh but world war two broke out and they needed a a head in the heart management working together with with labor uh mm-hmm. narrative instead um so instead the miners petition the government to uh, get the mine reopen um which leads to disaster and one of the government people dying but ultimately the mine does reopen and everyone's happy uh, <laughs> but the original ending the original ending is literally the miners seizing the means of production and which is opening incredible. the mine back up themselves yeah, yeah. that's uh now that yeah. that is a radical ending and i'm amazed they even got a chance to shoot it but i'm not the least bit surprised that it got removed like it would have been removed you know three years earlier before world war ii broke out so yeah <laughs> right right yeah yeah the idea uh, that that was that was even written is uh, <laughs> yeah uh, uh i mean but yeah similarly well like one of the things similarly here this is it's a movie with you know a strike that's central to the first you know you know three reels of the film uh but it doesn't show us the strike happening, you know, from the perspective of the Morgan family in the fact that they're out there picketing or that they're out of work. Like we actually literally see like the strike by analogy in that, you know, the men strike, but there's disagreement within the house, uh, you know, and the father is against the strike, but he's still striking. But, as a result, the four boys leave the house. They're effectively striking out of the family. And, uh, like, right. that's how we experience the strike is not how it uh, it's actually happening, but we do it by proxy, how it's disrupting this whole family and, how, and everything. And it, it kind of ties into the larger themes of the film of the family breaking up, you know, uh, because of the, you know, industrial revolution and the changes that are being uh, forced on communities everywhere. So. Well, you know, ultimately, uh, socialism dissolves the family. I'm sorry. That's just uh, how it uh, goes. Yeah. No, except, I'm I'm except for that it's uh, it's capital that's doing it, but in part because, uh, right. you know, this is a family with like seven children, like six boys and one girl. And uh, yeah. like... For you and me, like thinking back to our grandparents and great grandparents' generations, it's not uncommon for there to be five, seven, thirteen children for like Midwestern families. And this is the film is set in the eighteen nineties, uh, but like that whole, like you know, you're going to have like seven, ten plus children, whatever. That was actually a blip of history, like between like like the eighteen thirties and like the nineteen thirties, because you know, agriculture started producing enough food that your children were no longer starving if you had more children. 
uh, as well as right. medicine is getting better to where like your children are not dying from infections quite as much, uh, you know. Um, right. And so we have this big explosion in global population because there's more food, more reliably preserved for longer and people aren't and children aren't dying as much. Uh, coupled with the Industrial Revolution, where now actual currency is getting put in the hands of people where, you know, uh, 70 years before this movie, this entire family would have been serfs. They would never would have seen actual, like, money in their life, hardly. Uh, but, you know, uh, that capitalism of them actually having money makes everything change. Uh, and all, that's a big driver also of, like, everything that's going on here, like the, you know the they're getting a like a nine percent wage cut uh when they're you know they're actually striking and they but they know it's going to lead to more cuts uh but it's it's a very different world from like the world their their own grandchildren or grandparents had been grown up in so and a very different world three generations later the world went through an incredible amount of change in the uh, rapid modernization that happened, you know, in this, this period. So. Right. Right. And, you know, the, the spread of that change, uh, as a result of that change too. Right. You know, we see yeah. the, we see the boys leaving home, uh, but they go all over the world, right? They L- don't just literally all over the world. Yeah. America, yeah. New Zealand, and I don't know, South Africa. I don't, that's where in goes. Yeah. So, yeah they wind up on like four different continents. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, with, you know, British colonialism itself, uh, yeah, right. spreading around, but yeah. Well, and, uh, well, and also, the, uh, uh, like, like the mine is a new mine, which is what we hear in the opening narration. Like, uh, uh, the mine has not been around that long uh, because like even the mine owners are looking to there have their son is marrying a commoner basically from like the their own like hometown uh and then he does leaves to south africa to be a colonialist to try to make a fortune uh so even for the mine owners they're clearly not old money and are not part of like the normal like upper class british society there's a i didn't even notice that right. until i was rewatching it last night and i was like oh that's interesting so yeah, which uh, you know makes that scene with the mine owner, you know, partially, uh, of course, what you said of uh, Ford, you know, poking fun at at the rich guy, but also the fact that he's so stereotypical in his richness and the way he dresses is uh-huh. uh, is very very nouveau riche too. New <laughs> new money. Yeah, it is. It uh, is trying to trying to look like old money and putting on the, uh, the airs of it. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. He, he looks like a, yeah, he's just, he's got the top hat and the, uh, uh-huh. he's like, he looks like a Mon- Mr. And... Monopoly man. So, <laughs> right, right. He absolutely does. I wanted to, uh, to point out one thing we haven't brought up, which is the music in this film, uh, is a religious experience in and of itself. And the yeah. the uh, the amount of music going on from the open, like, and it's choral music as well. Like Welsh has a strong choral tradition, Wales does. Mm-hmm. And it's remarkable how much of the community and the religious, like, experiences of the family and 
of the whole community are bound up in these public displays of singing without it ever becoming a musical. And it's almost like the, you know, uh, that's like the heart and soul of the community. And it's not centered in the church, but the religious experience is like the whole community coming together for these, uh, these, uh, you know, song, you know, things that are, they're doing throughout the whole movie at various points. So, uh, I just thought, right. I was really, I was really struck by that this time that like that the, the church is, is not the center of the religious life of most of these people. The song is, which is, is fascinating, you know, like the dance, dance, wherever you may be, you know, uh, type of Bible (laughs) verse. Right. So, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's also it's also the center of their national life too, uh, mm-hmm. in that every everyone is excited when that uh, that representative choir gets to perform in front of the queen, and it's the right. only the only mention of any government function uh-huh. <laughs> within the movie uh, is is that they get invited to sing in front of the queen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's <laughs> and that's uh, is that. That's right after the strike breaks. Is it? Yes. Am I remembering the timeline it's, correctly? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's well. It's all happening at the same time. The 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 mother is able to like come down and like recover from her sickness. Uh, the strike breaks, but then they find out that okay, you've kept your wages or whatever, but we're no longer employing as many people. Uh, which right. is the so like it's a victory, but a hollow one. Uh, and that's going to drive a couple of the brothers to to leave for America, the two youngest brothers, other than Hugh. And uh, and then the oldest brother, who's the choir director, shows up because he's, uh, you know, been invited to sing for the queen. So it's like uh, it's a roller coaster of emotion for the family. And it's all <laughs> right. Like right. Happening at the same time. So that. uh that strike break actually reminded me of an experience I had working at a hotel once, uh, where, uh, the hotel I worked at, uh, had a new general manager about once every nine months while I worked there. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I worked for three different management companies over the course of the, the five years, I think that I was there. Um, lovely, but one, one of the general managers, was specifically his job to squeeze as much money out of it before the management company sold it to the next management company in line. Uh, uh, lovely. Yeah. And he, uh, there was a, a, an annual group in house, uh, who had like a hundred rooms and they always wanted, uh, these gift bags delivered during their first meeting. They would, everyone would arrive in the afternoon. They'd have one long dinner meeting and they wanted everyone to go back to their rooms and have these gift bags inside. And every year that that had happened, that uh, it was my job to deliver them, me and, uh, and other people of my position, uh, <laughs> the organization gave us $3 a piece for every bag delivered. And it was a very good bunny day. Um, because you're getting $150 out of an hour's work. Not bad. Uh, <laughs> particularly particularly in 2009. But he came on and he had decided that, uh, that the hotel was 
facilitating me making that money so the hotel would take the lion's share of that $3 a piece. Uh, and, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and in fact, give us, uh, I believe 75 cents per is what they were planning on, on giving our, our guys who actually delivered them. Uh, and, uh, I made a mess. I made a, I made noise about it and I refused to do it except that if I were to do it for, uh, what I had done it for previously, uh, and it was something that needed to be done and no one else wanted to do it. So they capitulated. They told me that I would get my normal pay for doing it. Uh, and then I didn't. Um, and I went in with the GM and, uh, he ultimately told me that if I wanted, I wanted $3 per, I could get it, but he was going to make sure that the other guys only got the 72 cents. Uh, but if I agreed to $2 per, everyone would get $2 per. Oh, uh, <laughs> oh was, management. Was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's uh, more or less when I decided to look for other work. But <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's, yeah. it's blatant wage theft. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah, and that's... He was, he was a guy who did did those sorts of unethical things on the regular. Uh, when he first got the job, he lived in the hotel till he found an apartment. And, uh, I was, I was working room service at the time. So I was making probably four an hour plus tips, uh, mm. in a state where the minimum wage was seven twenty five at that point. Uh, he, uh, he had me when he got the apartment, he had me on the clock at the hotel, move all of his stuff from the hotel to his apartment. Ah, what an ass. And, uh, yeah, yeah, he was, he really was, uh, he really, really was, but I wasn't in a union, uh, and really yeah. had very little recourse except for the, uh, self-inflation of my own value to the company, um, yeah. which, uh, worked for a minute in that particular instance, um, uh, but didn't work long-term. Certainly. Yeah. It's, it's amazing how many people are devoted to the principle of like, how can I be an asshole to as many people as possible rather than, uh, <laughs> you know, there's just, right. it's, it's, there's a lot of parts of life where it's act, actively hard to like do the wrong thing. And so many people will seek it out. Uh, and it's always amazed me. It's yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's crazy how, bad people are sometimes yeah. uh, to save $2, $200 to save yeah. $200 and some change. Like, right. What is, what is that to your revenue stream? It's uh -huh. nothing. So yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's like, well, I mean, that's were... the, the cruelty is the point, right? So, yeah. right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, but, uh, oh, just circling back to the, the choir coming, going to the queen and the, the strike breaking, but also the first brothers having to leave. Uh, so even though the family is reunited, it's immediately broken up again by the, the, everything that's going on. Uh, the father gets the, uh, 
family Bible out and says, like, let's read a chapter. And he's going to read Isaiah 55, uh, which is, uh, I looked it up and wrote it down for this. It's, uh, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Uh, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Uh, it's just, it's so on point. It's, it's even a verse about labor. Uh, it's, right. and it's a, it's a remarkable verse too. And I, I was reading that and I was like, this is an amazing sentiment, but it's not something that I ever grew up with, you know, in church. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's always just the parable of the, the old lady who put in two farthings. Uh, and like, that's the extent yeah. that they talk about it, which is, you know, just like put in all your money into the church is the message that it's, uh, it's actually, you know, giving, uh, it's about guilt tripping people for not giving enough. Uh, and then here's a, a money where it says, don't spend your labor on what does not satisfy. It's mysterious right. why they don't go over that in church. So with, with no money coming by, you know. uh-huh. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a rejection of it's a rejection of capitalism as a system uh, uh-huh. in one verse. It's, yes, yeah. as, like just like uh, so much of the Bible is, and so much of uh, right. the, the early church was. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Not a lot of not a lot of people preaching out of James in uh, in your growing up either. I'm sure. Um, uh, actually, our pastor I the, think uh, did a whole summer on James. I believe he usually would do like. Yeah. Over the summer, he's like, here's one of the books of the New Testament. We're going to go through the whole book over the summer because no one was in church. It was the summer. So. <laughs> well, even with no one in church, it'd be interesting to see how he handled the uh, don't trust rich people portions of, yeah. of James. Uh, uh, you know, uh, my wife uh, grew up in a church as well out here in California. And uh, one of the first times I went to, uh, to her church with them, uh, and her parents, uh, the sermon is one I will never forget. The, uh, pastor who's a friend of mine now, uh, it was kind of like, uh, I think he was the youth pastor at the time, but he was about to go into seminary, um, or like a theological JD or whatever. Um, and, uh, he did his whole sermon on Bible verse, uh, that the, the last enemy to be conquered is death. Which until he started basically the sermon off with that, like, quote, the last enemy to be conquered is death. I had no idea that was not just something that J.K. Rowling invented for Harry Potter, uh, <laughs> that, that that came, which is a very religious work. Harry Potter is it's a very Christian work. Uh, and because uh, that is inscribed on the gravestone of James and Lily Potter. Um, yeah. And uh, or Ignatius you know, whoever it was that had the invisibility cloak before them. Uh, and that was the most remarkable sermon because it's like the scene in Pollyanna where like the, you know, the, the preacher is going, death comes unexpectedly. And, uh, it's like, you could like look around like the church and like a lot of people were squirming because like it was a very theological take on the way, uh, the Bible, especially like that section of the Bible treats and discusses death and like the way we understand death in a Christian sense. And I was like, this is the best sermon I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah. So 
I don't, I've already forgotten yeah. what prompted me into that recollection, but, uh, <laughs> but it's, it's amazing what you find in the what? Bible that is not just the, uh, the, the selected reading of the parables that, you know, enforce the evangelical culture. So, yeah. 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 And that's, uh, you know, that's one thing I really love about this movie is, uh, is the, uh, there's some powerful theology in here. <laughs> and a, and a miracle. Yeah. <laughs> and a miracle. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. You can walk you if you try. Come lad. You can walk. Two. Walk. As much as Lazarus come forth, you know? Right. It's... And it's like, and the build up to that. And then just the hue walk is, uh, yeah, it's stunning. It's a stunning scene. And, you know, it's, you know, you can explain it away easily enough because they wrote it that way. Like, you know, uh, right. I mean, he wasn't, you know, he was probably suffering from hypothermia and a bout of pneumonia, but you know, it's not like they had antibiotics. Uh, so like the recovery was months, not, you know, days. Right. And, uh, but at the same time, like the movie is smart enough to also play it straight, and it just it reinforces like the the power of the kind of like Christianity that Mr. Griffith is like trying to bring to the valley because he's like you know he's like the new ideas <laughs> you know the right uh, he's he's the reformed church versus the like traditional church that you see in the other scenes so in a sense for for what this is not knowing much about the church of england kind of protestant tradition this is probably part of so um yeah he's uh he's definitely a it's an interesting portrayal um and the dichotomy they're trying to make with the other uh the other church leaders there you know but he's he's what he says about prayer and how how that miracle works within the narrative you know it's all it's all the same thing too, right? It's it's mm-hmm. set yourself and work toward it, and that that is the answer to prayer, and that is the miracle. You can do what you do, uh, and that's you know echoed in what he says about unions. You know? Yes, when yes. He's, when Yanto uh, declares that the church is against unions, and he says, uh, "Have your union." You need it. Alone you are weak. Together you're strong. But remember that with strength goes responsibility to others and yourselves. For you cannot conquer injustice with more injustice. Only with justice and the help of God. Are you coming outside your position in life, Mr. Griffith? Your business is spiritual. My business is anything that comes between man and the spirit of God. The deacons shall hear that you've been preaching socialism. It's, uh, it's an incredible sentiment. Yeah, I'm reminded in that of the uh, of the spiritual uh, wade into the water, wade in the water. God's going to trouble the water, but it's not God troubling. The, God's not supernaturally troubling the water. It's the act of wading in that's troubling uh-huh. the water, mm-hmm. uh, and it's you know praying with your feet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's he's giving Hugh a. Uh, like the movie contrasts the the doctor who says there's no hope you will ever walk again with Mr. Griffith immediately coming in and telling Hugh like nature is the handmaiden of the Lord, but you must have faith. Like yeah. he's 
what he's really accomplishing is he's giving Hugh hope and a friend and a partner right. in healing, giving him a goal, which are like the most important things for someone going through recovery of any kind is to have a goal and have, you know, a friend and have hope and have a, you know, you know, a, uh, a narrative out of it. Uh, right. And it's, it's even in, in that respect, you see like these, these kind of, uh, religiously toned interventions into like the, the status quo. And each time it's just so moving and on point and like full of like an ethos you can really like, uh, <laughs> like grab onto and agree with. Like it's, it's very powerful stuff. Right. Right. Particularly that, uh, his final speech in the church, Mr. Griffith's mm -hmm. final speech in the church before he, before he leaves. This is the last time I will talk in this chapel. I am leaving the valley with regret. Toward those who have helped me here and who have let me help them. But for the rest of you, those of you who have only proved that I have wasted my time among you, I have only this to say. There is not one among you who has had the courage to come to me and accuse me of wrongdoing. And yet, by any standard, if there has been a sin, I am the one who should be branded the sinner. Will anyone raise his voice here now to accuse me? No. They're cowards, too, as well as hypocrites. But I don't blame you. The fault is mine as much as yours. The idle tongues, the poverty of mind which you have shown, mean that I have failed to reach most of you with the lesson I was given to teach. You? I thought when I was a young man that I would conquer the world with truth. I thought I would lead an army greater than Alexander ever dreamed of. Not to conquer nations, but to liberate mankind with truth with the golden sound of the word. But only a few of them heard. Only a few of you understood. The rest of you put on black and sat in chapel. Why do you come here? Why do you dress your hypocrisy in black and parade before your God on Sunday? From love? No. For you've shown that your hearts are too withered to receive the love of your divine father. I know why you've come. I've seen it in your faces Sunday after Sunday as I've stood here before you. Fear has brought you here. Horrible, superstitious fear. Fear of divine retribution. A bolt of fire from the skies. The vengeance of the Lord and the justice of God. But you have forgotten the love of Jesus. 
You disregard his sacrifice. Death, fear, flames, horror, and black clothes. Hold your meeting, men. But know if you do this in the name of God and in the house of God, you blaspheme against him and his word. Talking about conquering the world, liberating mankind. Uh-huh. Uh, and the, uh, the superstitious fear of, of, that he sees in so much of the congregation. And, uh, oh, my God. His final yeah. speech is one of yeah. the great speeches. So, right. Uh, yeah. Especially coming through with that, like, that incredible, you know, deep voice that he has. It's just, it's very impressive. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, you know, uh, it's like that, uh, that, like, comedy, uh, like, roast that Obama was part of, like, the White House press delegation or whatever, like, that they have that's always kind of funny. And, uh, like, his last one, he had uh, Jordan Peele there, who was supposed to be, like, angry Obama, and Obama would say something, like, neutral, and then <laughs> yes. Jordan Peele would do, like, an angry version of it. And then Obama, like, the punchline is Obama busts out, like, legit angry and scathing, you know, for a climate change, like, rant. And Jordan Peele's like, no, no, no. And uh, it's amazing, and it's exactly what you want to hear, and it's, like, it's a huge applause moment and uh it's incredible it's just uh and of course he follows that up with you know he's you know leaving the church and abandoning it and immediately the community is literally falling apart the the mine has a major disaster a collapse and uh like the final shot of mr griffith that we'll then see a few minutes later is literally with him with his arms spread out standing over hugh and hugh's father like you know he's in a very like you know crucifix kind of position yeah uh like you know because he's literally sacrificed himself for this community at this point um right it's uh yeah so it's i mean he's very much the christ figure in the film uh and it's uh definitely extremely clear by the end of the film if it wasn't earlier from the miracles and the his ability to uh mediate all the different you know positions all the different parts of the community so yeah. Right. And uh and his attacks on hypocrisy and uh-huh, his uh-huh. insistence yes. on uh <laughs> Oh yeah. Hearing uh, uh a church figure like call out the hypocrisy within the church was that was a uh stunning thing to hear as a young teenager. I was like, Oh my god. <laughs> like the wait, the church leaders can see this too? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Goodness, I'm so glad you wanted to talk about this because I, I haven't seen it before, and uh, I'm glad to have watched it. I, uh, my experience with John Ford, uh, I've watched Young Mister Lincoln and The Searchers, um, mm-hmm. so it's very, it's, I don't have a lot of deep experience with Ford, and watching The Searchers makes me worry about any time I'm going to watch a Ford movie. <laughs> um, uh, well. Well, actually, we should probably put a link. I have a letterbox list where I'm uh, uh, I'd initially just started out as a personal list, like kind of ranking the John Ford's films I've seen. And then in the last couple of years, I've been circling back and rewatching them and reviewing them uh, with the goal of hopefully like reviewing all of uh, his films that I've seen, you know, over the next year or two, because I'll see like 10 or 20 over a year. Um, mm mm-hmm. And uh, so we could put a link to that list. But The Searchers is one of those movies where the first time you see it, you can't grapple with the possibility that John Wayne is a bad guy. 
So yeah. you never believe he's not going to do the right thing in the end. He's not because the whole and that's the problem with having John Wayne as the bad guy because his persona overwhelms what the that role of Ethan Edwards is supposed to be doing. Uh but like you're supposed to be terrified in that final scene that he is just going to murder Natalie Wood because she has been sullied. And as an audience, you're supposed to be horrified that they would just murder someone who has, you know, gone native. Um, And the movie is very much about like bringing the audience to a point where they're horrified at that thought, because, you know, this is still the 1950s, you know, miscegenation is still very much a big no, no for most of the country. And this is a movie that is arguing the humanity of people who are no longer adhering to white culture, like people who have gone native as Natalie Wood does. Um, And uh, and it's actually in a very subtle way. It's an an extremely anti-racist film because it works within all these racist tropes to bring the audience to a totally different position by the end of the film. Uh, And it's only when you watch it a few times that you start figuring it out. And what struck me the most when I watched it again last year uh, was early on in the film, uh, John Wayne, you know, breaks off from the main group because there's like two trails that go and he goes alone and he finds uh, the older daughter. And um, what we find out later, we never see any scene with him and him with the older daughter. He just comes back and when they reunite, like literally it's like cut and they here comes John Wayne. Oh man, he looks rough. Uh, and he's just haggard and he's kind of like almost catatonic. Uh, like he's like digging in the ground with a knife, not responding to dialogue. Uh, and the next scene we see that they think they've found the older daughter, but it's because an Indian has put on her clothes and is dancing around dressed as her. And, what the audience is supposed to take away from all of this scene is not uh, that the Indians raped and killed the daughter uh, and John Wayne had to find her and bury her, like, because this is driving the whole drama of the entire rest of the film after this. You're supposed to take away from this. John Wayne found the older daughter naked and alone on that separate trail, still alive, and he murdered her. Yeah. And so, like, that's... That's what the whole film is driving off of is also that his character arc is going from someone that murders women when they've you know been raped uh, to someone that is going to forgive them and take them back into to, uh, you know, as acknowledge their humanity, at least. Um, and it's, yeah. it's a remarkable film in that respect. But it's very hard to, like, untangle all of that because we we miss a lot of that now because we're not part of the 1950s culture so <laughs> that's fair yeah <laughs> we could do another hour on the searchers i'm sure i'm uh, sure we could so <laughs> <laughs> ah maybe next year thank you adam for uh, for joining me for this um thank you yeah, adam like for i said you. i'm yeah i'm very uh, very happy yeah as i as i said at the beginning of the show i uh, Part of this project is getting me to watch movies I wouldn't otherwise watch. Uh, and uh, as of this moment, How Green Was My Valley is not in the Criterion Collection, so I won't eventually uh, eventually see it. Um, so I'm, I'm glad to uh, have the opportunity to be forced uh, arm-twisted into watching such an amazing movie. <laughs> it <laughs> really so is remarkable. To have seen it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, thanks for joining me here, and uh, thank you listeners for uh, listening to Cinema Credo. I'm your host, Adam Glass, and I'll see you next time.
Conversations on Film and Faith. I'm your host and writer, Adam Bless. Film clips this week are used under fair use. Thank you to Steve Richter for the use of our theme song, Madrasita, off of his album, Beloved. Check out his work at steverichter.com. That's S-T-E-E-V-R-I-C-H-T-E-R.com. com. <laughs>